Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Anne Foster, and all this season, the last eight episodes and today as well, we've been looking at the theme of how to lose a queen in nine days, aka the Lady Jane Grey scenario. And over the past few episodes, or the past eight episodes, we've looked at where the Grey family came from, how they became powerful, and then how they were fairly ruthlessly squashed down by first Mary the first and then by Elizabeth the first until there was not a gray option to become the new king or queen except for sort of Catherine Grey's children but they were technically illegitimate so even even them what we're looking at today is sort of an epilogue to this season is what happened after all of the gray the three gray sisters were taken out of contention to be the new queen because that didn't mean there wasn't anyone else. That didn't mean there wasn't anyone else threatening Elizabeth's reign. What it meant is that suddenly and unexpectedly, the other descendants of Mary Tudor came into play. And we're going to look at kind of the final possible option, who is a woman named Lady Anne Stanley. But to get to her, we need to do a little parallel family tree exploration. So I think we now know from all the previous episodes this season the chain of events that got to the gray sisters so we're gonna go and see where lady anne stanley comes from so it all starts with mary tudor who had two daughters her daughter Frances became the mother of the three gray sisters lady jane gray lady catherine gray and lady mary gray but mary tudor's other daughter was named eleanor and so once all the grays were out of the way then people who wanted to champion this sort of option on the family tree switched over to the descendants of Eleanor Brandon. So we're going to work our way through there. But first, I just want to mention that my sources for this information, which I had to do a bit more digging than as per usual, Lady Anne Stanley, not a lot written about her. I had to actually go to the university library, log on to one of the free computers to read a really good, uh, I think it's a thesis so it's a so first of all there's a book called a house in gross disorder sex law and the second earl of castlehaven by cynthia b harrop and then secondly it's a thesis by vj wilkie from 2009 called such daughters and such a mother the countess of derby and her three daughters 1560 to 1647 the links to both of these things will be in the show notes and I do want to also mention that, you know, in these podcasts, in, in all of them, there's going to be, all, you know, you can always rely on some bullshit from the patriarchy. Very often, there's going to be a child marriage. There might be, you know, there's unpleasant stuff happening all over the place in all of these stories. But in this episode specifically, I guess I'll just give a content warning that there's going to be discussion of sexual assault and rape. So be forewarned. 
And I'll also just mention in the podcast when we're going to get to that part of the story. So you could maybe choose to listen to the first part and then peace out when we get to that part. But just so everybody's aware that that's coming, I don't want to bring it out of the blue for you. So Mary Tudor, second daughter, Eleanor Brandon. Now, the thing about Eleanor Brandon is that we know almost nothing about her. So where Frances Brandon, we knew enough about her that I did what? I did like a 45-minute episode about her. Eleanor Brandon is more shrouded in mystery, which is my fun way of saying no one really wrote anything about her, and we don't have any of her diaries or letters. So this could mean Frances Brandon, as the older sister, just was a bunch more scheming and took on more of the scheming kinds of stuff, and... Eleanor just was, quote-unquote, well-behaved, one of the well-behaved women who doesn't make history. It could also mean that Eleanor was just so good at scheming that nobody noticed it and nobody wrote about it, or she burned all those records. But when doing this kind of research that I do into often the lesser-known women of history, more often than not, frankly, you come across a person like Eleanor Brandon, where all that we know about her is kind of when she was born, kind of when she died, the name of her husband and the names of her children. So I wish there was more I could tell you about her, but all I can say is that Eleanor Brandon married a man named Henry Clifford, the first Earl of Cumberland, and they had one surviving child whose name was Margaret Clifford. So we're now one level down in the family tree. Eleanor and Francis were sisters. So Margaret Clifford, Eleanor's daughter, would be the first cousin of the Gray sisters. And we know some stuff about Margaret Clifford, Specifically, so Margaret married Henry Stanley, the fourth Earl of Derby, in 1555, and they had a stormy relationship. Margaret wrote that there were several breaches and reconciliations, so aka they were on and off again in a renaissance sort of way, and eventually when her husband left her, I don't know if that means he died or if he like literally left her, I'm going to assume died, anyway, he left her with serious debt. So she was left over with that when he left, however that was that he left. They had two children who survived childhood. Both of them were sons. So for the first time since Catherine Gray, we've got sons in this story because everyone's just always having daughters. And I guess that's the other thing too. If Eleanor had had a surviving son rather than her daughter, Margaret, that probably would have become the person that all the, the champions would have wanted to take over from Elizabeth. Anyway, so Margaret had two sons. Her older son was named, and this is inexplicable to me, I'm not sure who he was named after or why, but I love it, because instead of being named Robert, Edward, or Henry, he was named Ferdinando. So her older son is Ferdinando Stanley, and her younger son is the less exciting William Stanley. In 1578... Lady Mary Grey died, and that was the end of the Grey Sisters. She was the third and final Grey Sister, which meant that all of a sudden, Margaret Clifford, the daughter of Mary Tudor's daughter, who was in the line of succession, but like quite a ways down, was suddenly and unexpectedly kind of the heir to the throne, which she wouldn't have been raised expecting, I don't think, and took her by surprise. But maybe as part of her way of trying to figure out what this meant for her and how it might affect her life. Margaret was overheard discussing the proposed marriage of Queen Elizabeth to the Duke d'Alenson. So this was Queen Elizabeth I, as I think we all know, never married anybody, but she had a 
sort of long-term flirtation with a French person whose name was the Duke d'Alençon. And the sort of thing was like, well, if Elizabeth married him, then he would kind of get power. And if they had a child, then that child would have power. And perhaps Margaret Clifford was thinking that would get in her way because maybe she wanted to become Queen Margaret. So apparently, I guess this is what she was overheard doing. She was opposed to this marriage because it might threaten her own possible becoming the queen. And then apparently or allegedly she went to talk to a sorcerer to predict when Elizabeth would die, which it itself was an act of treason. Just on the first hand, I think it was technically illegal for anyone to even mention the fact that the queen might die ever. There's other stories I've come across where people got in trouble and got arrested for trying to find, to learn the future about when the king or queen might die. Margaret was also accused of planning to poison Elizabeth. So she was arrested. And then as all the women, I guess, except for Anne Askew this season, she wasn't put in prison because she was too important, but she was trapped in somebody's house as, you know, an unwilling house guest. In her defense, and maybe this is true, this is not a Margaret Clifford episode, so I haven't done a deep dive into her specifically. But what Margaret Clifford said is that the accused sorcerer was actually just her physician and he was staying in the house with her because he could cure sickness and weakness in her body. And this was a man whose name was William Randall and he was executed for allegedly making this prediction. No charges were actually brought against Margaret, but she was banished from court and her reputation was ruined. And this kind of sealed the deal that like she was just not going to be ever the queen ever because she was such a toxic person at this point. Margaret wrote repeatedly to Elizabeth, complaining that she was in a black dungeon of sorrow and despair, overwhelmed with heaviness through the loss of your majesty's favor and gracious countenance. She was also still had, had lots of bills to pay left over from her terrible husband. And that's kind of the end of what we're going to talk about vis-a-vis Margaret Clifford. But moving on to her son, Ferdinando Stanley. At this level, Ferdinando would have been at the same age range as the children of Catherine Gray. So Ferdinando Stanley, not only did he have the best name thus far in this story, but just wait, there's going to be an even better name coming up. It's very exciting for me. There's been so many Edwards and Marys in this season and Catherines. So not only did Ferdinando Stanley have the best name thus far in the story, his family was one of the most powerful in England from both sides. So we know about his mother's pedigree, Margaret Clifford being the granddaughter of Mary Tudor. But the Stanleys were old money land magnates whose areas of control included literally the entire Isle of Man, like they were in charge of that entire island. So Ferdinando is an eligible bachelor. Anyone who managed to marry him, like he was a catch, like he would be married to somebody super important and his wife was a woman named Alice Spencer and these are going to be the parents of today's heroine when we get to her Anne Stanley. So Alice Spencer wasn't as super rich as you might expect given that she landed Ferdinando Stanley as her husband but what she was was brilliant. The Spencers were a noble family so she had a head start in life in general 
but the Stanleys were in such a higher echelon of wealth and influence. It's pretty remarkable Alice managed this marriage. But the thing is, she herself was incredibly ambitious, talented, and successful, and was the youngest of three daughters. And I think you might remember from last time, I'm always a champion for the youngest of three daughters. So this is some um, Lady Mary Grey energy she's bringing to it. Each of her older sisters married someone a little bit richer than the last one. So each time the one of her sisters married, the whole family's reputation was elevated along with them. So by the time it was time for Alice to get married, the combination of her forceful personality and the Spencer family being sort of like a up-and-coming, increasingly important family meant that she got to marry Ferdinando Stanley, the most eligible bachelor. Together, she and Ferdinando had three daughters. This is starting to feel like very fairy tale esque the recurrence of three daughters. In this case, Lady Anne Stanley was the eldest. But we're still not going to get to Anne Stanley's story because there's still so much of this wild preamble, prologue stuff. So basically, a bunch of Catholics wanted to get rid of Queen Elizabeth I and make Ferdinando the king instead. Despite, like, no matter what your level of of knowledge of British history is, I think we can all know that there was never King Ferdinando of England. And the thing is, Ferdinando wasn't into the idea either. He actually turned them down because they were like, hey, guess what, Ferdinando? We are the Catholic conspirators and we want to make you be the king. And he was like, mm, pass. And they are like, okay, but if you don't help us with this plan, we will kill you. And then, and then they did. He died after being fed poisoned mushrooms, which is like big Agrippina energy. And so this left Alice, age 34, a widow with three young daughters. And then on top of that, her husband having just been murdered by Catholic mushrooms meant that this could affect her reputation. And so she had to use all of her charm and resiliency to ensure that the family wasn't brought into disgrace. And then she could continue to exert the power and influence of the Stanley name that she had married into. But again, Alice Spencer knew what she was doing, because even before Ferdinando died, she'd gotten Ferdinando to rewrite his will to name Anne, Lady Anne Stanley, their oldest daughter, as his heir, because if he hadn't rewritten that, then automatically his heir would have been his younger brother, William Stanley. But the thing is, William Stanley was a dirtbag, and he ushered in the family's next big drama. So Ferdinando, dead from mushrooms. His younger brother, William, was like, well, actually, I should inherit the land and money and property instead of Lady Anne Stanley because I am a man and also I'm awful. So he filed a lawsuit against Alice Spencer to try and have Ferdinando's will overturned. Alice was like, okay, bring it. And the two of them batted this around in the court system for literally years, and neither of them gave in at all, and they were both rich enough they could just keep going after each other through lawyers. Until finally, Alice got tired of the whole thing and decided on a genius plan to get rid of William once and for all. And that plan was that she married an extremely powerful lawyer named Egerton, so he became her husband and her lawyer, and then she and Egerton won the lawsuit and William went away forever, basically. What's important here, well, other than that was just a great story, is that Alice's three daughters bore witness to their mother's strength, tenacity, and unrelenting strength of character. She was a pretty phenomenal role model for her daughters, Again, the oldest of which, Lady Anne Stanley, I promise we're going to talk about in a few minutes. So, 
Not only was Alice Spencer brilliant at politics and legal matters, but she's also an incredible theater producer slash party planner. When Ferdinando died, she took over as patron of his theater group, which was called Lord Strange's Men. Oh, because Ferdinando, I think, was Lord Strange. Lord Strange's Men was a group that included a certain William Shakespeare, if you're wondering how culturally relevant this group was. And then to celebrate her victory in court over William and through a huge mask, and that's M-A-S-Q-U-E, which is like a party slash theater performance that included members of the family taking on roles in the show. This was her way of being like, here we are, the Stanley women, unstoppable, having persevered through another of life's challenges, don't mess with us, and also enjoy this party slash play. And just as Alice herself had benefited from her sister's successful marriages to the point that she's able to marry Ferdinando, she set out to get the best possible husbands for her three daughters, Lady Anne Stanley being the oldest of the three daughters. Alice set her sights as high as possible. Her first choice, and also because Lady Anne Stanley was potentially heir to the throne, future queen at this point. So Alice's first choice for Anne's potential husband was the Prince of Muscovy, which was sort of a place where Russia is now, but unfortunately the negotiations didn't work out. And before she had solidified who Anne's husband was going to be, Queen Elizabeth I died in 1603 and she named as her heir... James I from Scotland, the descendant of Margaret Tudor via Mary, Queen of Scots. So there was a new king. He was young. He had sons of his own. So suddenly Lady Anne Stanley was just no longer really a potential queen. She would be some people who didn't like James would maybe back her. But most of the people who wanted to get rid of James were backing the sons of Catherine Grey. So Alice, she was savvy. She knew it was up. She knew that she needed to readjust her expectations. So she pragmatically refocused her husband hunting to someone non-royal. And eventually in 1607, Lady Anne Stanley was married to a nobleman named Grey Bridges, which is the best name in the story. Grey Bridges, and he had the title Baron Chandos of Sudeley, which, because those are British words, it's probably pronounced Baron Chips of Sudtown, but Grey Bridges was his name. So not only did he have the most amazing name I've ever seen ever since Ferdinando Stanley. But Grey Bridges was also apparently super popular and a seemingly really cool guy. His nickname was the King of the Cotswolds because he was so friendly to everybody who lived on his lands. Like he was kind to the poor people and the rich people. He was just sort of like, he would walk around shaking hands, kissing babies, supporting local poets. And also he wrote his own poems and things. He was way older than Lady Anne Stanley, but that wasn't a deal breaker back then as we all know all too well, and especially where he was nice and kind and his name was Grey Bridges. And this just seems kind of like a nice situation for them both. There aren't tons of records about the next bit of Anne's life, but we know she had about five children and we can imagine she and Grey Bridges had a super time together reading books and writing books and choosing which theater groups to sponsor and that sort of thing. In 1621, after 14 years of marriage and five or so children, Grey Bridges tragically died, leaving Anne a widow, and everything started to get. This is where I'll like redo the content warning vis-a-vis sexual assault and rape situations. So Anne Stanley was a young widow, just like her mother had been. She was 40 years old at this point. There were pros and cons to either remaining a widow or to marrying again, and I'm sure she and her mother talked through what are the best options. So she was now the Dowager Baroness Chandos. 
because remember, Grey Bridges was Baron Chandos of Sudali. So Lady Anne Stanley is the Dowager Baroness Chandos. She would have gained control of the Bridges family property and would have final say in her daughter's affairs. But without a husband, she had no political authority and had to submit to the will of her male relatives when it came to her own affairs. So in this sense, taking a husband would kind of bring her more freedom than she would have had as a widow. So she looked around to try and find a good husband for herself, and I feel like she chose him herself, because I don't think Alice would have done this. The man that she chose to marry seemed like a good match on paper. He was a widower with children of his own, he was a property owner, he lived in a castle, and unlike her first marriage, which had happened where she was, I think, late teens, early 20s, like she wasn't a super young bride, but this marriage wasn't about having children or continuing on a family lineage because she already had children. This was basically about property, finances, and security. Her mother had taken care of the negotiations for her first marriage, but now as a 40-year-old woman, she decided to sort out her this match for herself. And from the beginning, her choice of husband was both controversial and terrible. So time to meet Mervyn Touche, the Earl of Castlehaven. And again, with British pronunciations, it's probably like Mervyn Tuckett, but... We're just going to call him Mervyn, which is spelled just so you know with a Y, M-E-R-V-Y-N, the Earl of Castlehaven. He was 13 years younger than Anne, which is fine and no big deal, but he was also way below her in terms of money, family influence, power, and basically everything. Like he had a castle, but it wasn't a very good one. And he had a title, but it was an Irish title. And the thing is that King James, who had now been king for a minute, he had this thing where to make money... Oh no, it wasn't him. It was that guy who I did in the mini episode. Anyway, just to make money in during the reign of King James, people could buy lordships to things. And because all the English places already had lords, they started selling Irish things. So this is where Castlehaven's title came from. Oh, and then also on top of all that, Mervyn had links to people of the Catholic faith, which was one of the worst things to be during this highly contentious period of English Protestantism. So he was not as rich and powerful as Anne. He had ties to Ireland, which was kind of iffy at this point. He had ties to Catholic people. So these are should have been three strikes against him. Alice probably would have seen them as such. But wait, there's more. Because Mervyn was also, he was enough of a gigantic asshole that people back then, like the people of 17th century England, people who threw feces out of their window on top of other people's heads and then were like, why are we all dying of dysentery? We're like, oh, that guy. Oh yeah, he's pretty much a dick. His family basically sucks, especially his sister who is bananas. So just to be a rich white man in this period of time for people to even then think you're an asshole, just like how much of an asshole do you need to be is the question. His sister, I mean, just side note about his sister, her name was Eleanor Davies. She was a poet, pamphlet writer, and prophetess, like a prophet, but lady version. She was married and her husband didn't like that she did these things, writing poetry, pamphlets, and prophesizing. Her husband was like, Eleanor, I would appreciate if you would stop printing poems and prophecies in pamphlets. In response, Eleanor put on a widow's outfit and in front of her husband was like, I prophesize that you will die very soon. And then he did. Eleanor was so intense about her prophecies that she was kicked out of the royal court because her predictions were too disturbing. So this is all pretty exciting. And I guess as long as she didn't predict that the king was going to die 
she'd be fine. But this is sort of like socially, people found her kind of a bit much. And so this was just one more reason that people were just kind of like, Mervyn's family is kind of like, do we want to marry into this family? E.g. to somebody like Alice Spencer would have been like, "Uh, daughter of mine, is this is this the match you want for yourself? Like there's the, we've got a pros column and a cons column and there's like nothing in the pros column. And yet Lady Anne Stanley must have seen something in Mervyn Touche that she liked. Maybe his castle, maybe his money, maybe just that she was desperate to marry anyone. For whatever reason, in 1624, she married him to solidify their new Brady Bunch style blended family. She then arranged for her 12 year old daughter, Elizabeth Bridges to marry Mervyn's 19 year old son, James Touche, which is, you know, not something we would see happen nowadays too often, but it was not an uncommon thing then if two parents married and they both had children to then marry the children to each other. So there's like a two generation tie connecting these two families just to sort of cement the union between the families. In fact, Alice Spencer had actually done the same thing when she married Egerton, the lawyer. One of She had married one of Anne's sisters to Egerton's son. But something about this marriage between the teenage step-siblings did not go well. Shortly after the marriage, James Touche abandoned his stepsister slash wife and his whole family and just like ran off to leave the Castle Haven family home entirely. And in retrospect, this was a clue that something really weird was going on inside of that home. And what was going on was basically content warning. Take a pause. Okay, we're going. In 1530, six years after Anne and Mervyn's wedding, Mervyn's estranged son James, so who I was just talking about, filed charges against his father. And what charges were those? Well, James Touche claimed his father Mervyn was trying to disown him and to keep him from his inheritance, which is just like so much inheritance drama between rich people back then. But unlike the court struggles between Alice Spencer and William, the situation was different. In his petition to the court, James explained or claimed that he had abandoned his stepsister slash wife, Elizabeth, years before. So this was six years after he had left her. And again, feel free to stop listening at this point if you don't want to get into the rape sexual assault of it all. So James claimed that his father Mervyn had forced then 12-year-old Elizabeth to have a sexual relationship with one of Mervyn's favorite male servants. Allegedly, Mervyn's goal with this was for Elizabeth to become pregnant with a son and to have that son become Mervyn's new heir so that James wouldn't inherit anything. Now, there's a lot to unpack with this. So I'll begin by saying that just because a 12-year-old got married back then did not mean that she was expected to have children right away. Usually, very young brides hung out with their families until they were in their later teens slash early 20s because when young girls have babies, both the girls and the babies often died. So James may not have been having sex with his 12-year-old stepsister slash wife due to her very young age, but Mervyn really wanted this heir to happen which is why he was coercing Elizabeth to have sex with Mervyn's male servant. James also alleged at this time that his stepmother slash mother-in-law, Lady Anne Stanley, was licentious and had sex with servants and took lots of lovers, which, like, whether that's true or not, what business of that is James? Basically, James was like, my father is a gross dirtbag who is also trying to steal my inheritance. I want my inheritance. Please help me out with this oldie-time Law & Order SVU team. 
well, and actually the people he talked to were the Privy Council. And they were like, uh, what the fuck are you talking about? This is like really fucked up. Like, never mind your inheritance. Like, what the fuck? So they rode their horses and carriages over to the castle to interrogate a bunch of people and just to figure out what the fuck. And they had no idea what they were going to find out. So the SVU squad interviewed all the men they could find, including servants, and all the noble women, because female servants were thought to be, quote, unreliable and not worth interviewing, because everything about this is awful. So they interviewed Elizabeth, who's now 18 years old. And so they were like, so, Elizabeth, your absentee husband said that when you were 12 years old, your stepfather slash father-in-law forced you to have a sexual relationship with a male servant in order to become pregnant. Can you confirm or deny? And Elizabeth was like, yes, that is what happened. And she was like, also, just by the way, Mervyn held my mother down and made a male servant rape her too. And they were like, even for us, the oldie time SVU team, this is a bit much. So they brought in Lady Anne Stanley and she was like, yes, that's all true. When we first got married, Mervyn wanted to watch her having sex with other men and Anne didn't want to do this. A side note, Anne Stanley claimed that Mervyn had been having sex with male and female servants, aka raping them, due to the inherent lack of consent between an employer and employees vis-a-vis sexual relations. She also alleged that Mervyn has peepholes all over the castle and just like makes random people have sex with each other so he can watch them. She also claimed that he forced his own teenage daughter, not Elizabeth, Anne's teenage daughter, but another teenage girl to marry one of his secret male servant lover slash victims. And Anne Stanley also said, right after Mervyn forced a male servant to rape her, she tried to kill herself. She, Lady Anne Stanley. But the servant slash rapist stopped her from killing herself. And that servant's name was Giles Broadway. Now that's a lot for you to take in. And that was a lot for the SVU team as well. They were like, okay, sounds fake. Like, how could this much horrible stuff all be happening all at the same time? So they went to the servant, Giles Broadway, to ask, is it true that Mervyn Touche made you rape his wife, Anne Stanley, and then she tried to stab herself to death, but you stopped her? And Giles Broadway was like, yes, that is true. So the SVU squad were like, okay, we need to charge somebody with something because this is nightmarishly horrendous, but who do we charge and with what? Like, can we call it a crime to just be like a really shitty person who makes people have sex with other people while he watches them? They could not. That was not a crime. In fact, the way that being charged with things back then worked was that nobody was ever charged with just rape. Like, if somebody kidnapped somebody and then raped them, they'd be charged with kidnapping and rape. Or if somebody was somebody raped and then murdered somebody, they'd be charged with murder and rape. But rape on its own was not seen as an individual crime that could be prosecuted. Plus, at this point, rape charges were usually only filed when it was a lower class man assaulting a higher class woman. And then it was more about breaking the laws of class structure rather than violating a woman's body. And even then, when accused rapists were put on trial, they weren't often convicted for literally the same reasons as now. It's all he said, she said, and men were believed more often than women. So in the instance of this scenario, The first and easiest charge for them to figure out was to accuse Giles Broadway, the servant, for raping Anne Stanley. He was a servant. She was a noblewoman. Broadway had admitted to doing it. They also charged Mervyn Touche with orchestrating this rape, as well as for sodomy. And let's put that into some context as well. In the 17th century in England, there is no word or understanding of the concept of 
homosexuality. There was sex that could lead to babies and sex that was just for pleasure. And sodomy, the legal term at the time, meant having sex for pleasure instead of to make babies. So anal sex between men was considered sodomy. Oral sex between anyone, anal sex between a man and a woman, basically anything that wasn't a penis ejaculating into a vagina was sodomy and thus illegal. So the charge of sodomy was basically, you have no self-control and you're being driven by base and carnal impulses, which is against the law because the law was very biblical at the time. Similar to rape charges, sodomy was usually added onto something else just to besmirch the character of the accused. So for Mervyn to be charged with rape and sodomy was already pretty rare and unusual. This situation was rare and unusual. So Mervyn Touche was charged with arranging the rape of his wife and for having sex with male servants. Because the law was for having sex for non-procreative purposes, the men who Mervyn had been having sex with were also arrested for sodomy. Oh, sorry, the man. And his name was Lawrence Fitzpatrick, and he's a victim too. So like so many assholes before, since, even today, Mervyn tried to play the whole thing where like, I didn't do anything, but even if I did, it wasn't bad. He was just like, Yes, my son James and my wife Anne are conspiring against me, but also when I raped Lawrence Fitzpatrick, there was no penetration, so it's not actually rape. And also Anne was asking for it because she was so licentious all the time. So when I made Giles have sex with her, it wasn't rape. It was sex, but also there was no penetration, and also she enjoyed it. So it was just ridiculous. Like, none of what he said made any sense. And God bless them. The judges were like, Mervyn, go fuck yourself. Whether there's penetration or not, it's sex. And even if a woman is straight up a whore, she can still be raped. Like they literally said in their findings in 16 whatever, like even if someone is a sex worker, she can still be raped, which is like impressive. So Mervyn was like, okay, but a wife can't testify against her husband in court though, right? And the judges were like, guess what? She can't. We're setting legal precedent right now and we're going to let Lady Anne Stanley be the first woman to ever testify against her husband in a rape trial in a court in England. This was huge. So remember how female servants weren't questioned because of misogyny and patriarchy. Similarly, women were not allowed to testify in court, even rich women. But Anne Stanley was so powerful and her family was so important and Mervyn was such a piece of shit that judges were like, we'll allow it. And thus, Lady Anne Stanley became the first ever woman to testify against her husband in a rape trial in England, setting precedent for countless women after her which is a shitty sort of glass ceiling to break, but she did and good for her. Now, maybe because women testifying was still so weird, Anne didn't appear herself in person in the courtroom, but rather prepared a statement that was read out loud on her behalf. This was super smart as well, because it allowed the all-male jury to focus on her words and not to be weirded out by seeing a woman in court. Her daughter Elizabeth Bridges also prepared a statement which was read out loud. And just by having their testimony read out loud, this was new precedent being set. And speaking of the all-male jury, it consisted of 27 noblemen. Remember how many connections Anne Stanley and her family had, going back to, to Alice, Spencer, and then even like the tutors of it all, the Stanley family being so impressive. So between all her family's various marriages and ancestors, Anne Stanley was at least slightly related to something like 10 of the 27 jurors. And Alice Spencer 
went full Chris Jenner on the situation, manipulating and leveraging every favor she'd ever done for anyone, ensuring that the jury would side with her daughter and granddaughter. And so while all this had been happening with Anne Stanley, her sisters, the other two daughters of Alice Spencer, had been busy. They were also married to important people. They'd been building up their own portfolios of important contacts and connections, and they pitched in two. So it was the Stanley women against the world. And I think we know who's going to win the Stanley women. Meanwhile, remember Mervyn's sister, Eleanor, the prophetess? So she was by now fully into her career as a freelance poet slash prophetess. Like ever since her husband like mysteriously died after she prophesied that he would die, she was just like really leaning into this pamphlet printing career. So Eleanor got a bunch of pamphlets made that said, basically, Anne Stanley is a whore, my brother is innocent, wives shouldn't be allowed to testify against their husbands, hashtag not all men, is how I interpret what her pamphlets would have said. And this didn't help things among the common folk, like the non-rich people. So all the noble people all knew that Marvin was this horrible asshole piece of shit, but the everyday people who wouldn't have interacted with him and they just had to rely on, I guess, pamphlets to learn about anything. We're like, mm, Anne Stanley sounds kind of like a conniving bitch. So public opinion was like not great among the common people at this point, but they weren't on the jury. So the trial took literally one day. The 27 member jury was like, we're unanimous in saying that Mervyn Touche is a piece of shit who is guilty of orchestrating the rape of his wife and is also guilty of sodomy, a.k.a. sex for non-reproductive purposes. We sentence him to death. And then they all ran off to like bleach their brains or whatever because they had to hear all this horrible stuff that we're all now hearing as well. And so the world became a slightly better place on May 14th, 1631, when Mervyn Touche was beheaded. Rest not in peace, you piece of shit. One month later, Giles Broadway and Lawrence Fitzpatrick had their trials for rape and sodomy. Both men withdrew their previous confessions, claiming they'd been tricked into thinking they had immunity when they didn't, but they were servants, so nobody cared what they had to say. Again, Anne Stanley testified, this time in person. She stood up there in front of everyone and retold what had happened to her. And then she was like, because I'm a Christian woman who is also forgiving, I would like to look Giles Broadway in the eye and show how benevolent I am. And the jury was like, wow, she's so gracious and wonderful. This makes Giles seem like such a piece of shit. And of course, both men were found guilty because they were servants and nobody gave a shit about them. Lawrence Fitzpatrick, though, is such a victim here. And Giles is, too, because they both worked for Mervyn and had to do what he said. So there's some sympathy there. They are victims. But on the scaffolds, when they are going to be hanged, both of them were like, Anne Stanley is a devious, manipulating sex monster. This is all her fault. We're innocent, and so is Mervyn, and women are terrible. Don't trust women. They were both hanged on July 6th, 1631. So, Mervyn is dead. The two servants are dead. The whole matter is kind of, like, sorted, I guess, except for the long-standing psychological damage. And Alice Stanley was like, time to throw a mask to celebrate this victory and to remind everybody that the Stanley women are undefeatable. So Alice Spencer commissioned a playwright named John Milton to write a mask called Arcades, which was performed by her grandchildren. Lady Anne Stanley's name had been dragged through the mud, as had that of her daughter Elizabeth Bridges. But by throwing this party, Alice Spencer was indicating to everyone that everything was back to normal. And with this party, life officially moved on for the Stanley family. In fact, three years later, Anne's brother-in-law, 
was appointed to the prestigious role of Lord President of Wales, showing that this whole Mervyn Touche scenario had not affected the political power of the Stanley women. As ever, a mask was thrown. I just love, I love that this family is just like, oh, something just happened. Let's throw a giant party where we have a play that we all act in. So this mask was thrown for which, again, the playwright John Milton was commissioned to write a play. He wrote, the play he wrote for this was called Comus, Komu, which is apparently a famous play about the importance of chastity. So it was sort of like a subtweet to everyone that despite the whole Mervyn Touche of it all, the Stanley women were still like proper ladies. So not only did Alice work to smooth things over through party planning and just like leveraging all of her political connections and her personal charm, she also ensured that Anne Stanley and her daughter Elizabeth Bridges' reputations were restored. So similar to how Anne had testified and in so doing demonstrated her personal graciousness, Alice leaned into her femininity by being like, ooh, I would love nothing more than to have my daughter and granddaughter come live with me, but I can't do that until the king grants them both pardons. And like me, you're probably wondering, what do Anne and Elizabeth need pardons for? They were literally victims in this whole thing, slash heroes. But the thing is that the whole patriarchal system had been upended by allowing Anne and Elizabeth to testify, and Alice knew things couldn't go back to normal until that balance was restored. And because she was a genius, eventually the king agreed, and both Anne and Elizabeth were officially pardoned for not having anything to do with anything, which they didn't, but this was now official. In Alice Spencer's will, she named Anne's son George Bridges as her heir and left instructions to leave a large amount of property and items for Anne. Anne's two sisters died at around the same time, leaving Lady Anne Stanley to live out the final decade of her life as the only remaining Stanley woman from this tightly knit foursome that they had once been. Lady Anne Stanley passed away in 1647, age 67, and her daughter Elizabeth Bridges passed away in 1678, aged about 70, and their final grave sites are unknown. And that is the saga of Lady Anne Stanley, Alice Spencer, and the Castlehaven rape trial. So, <laughs> it's time to do a an accounting of this. So we talked about Alice Spencer a lot. We talked about Margaret Clifford a little bit, but technically this episode is about Lady Anne Stanley. So that is who we're going to be scoring on the scandalicious scale. So the first category is scandaliciousness. And frankly, I'm going to give this a nine for scandaliciousness. Like just the whole affair was so it was so scandalous, everything that happened. Like the fact that people back in that time, in a time that was like kind of licentious anyway, were like people I'm sure were like raping their servants all the time. Like the extent to what her husband was up to. And then like the involvement, just all of it. Do I need to explain this? Like, no. Like this is a nine for scandaliciousness. Whether or not Anne Stanley was complicit in anything that happened, that this was a scandalous situation scheminess if i was grading her mother i would be tempted to give like 10 out of 10 and herself i feel like i think the smartest thing she did was to let her mother finally take over after her because when she took made her own scheme to choose a husband that did not go well she was she was not there's not much recorded about her being very schemy even even if we were to give her the credit for how she testified and she presented herself as this like very forgiving Christian woman, 
like I feel like her mother probably coached her what to do there but I'm gonna give her I think a four for scheminess because there's definitely some stuff there that could have been her but I feel like so much of it was her mother significance this is interesting so usually when I'm looking at significance it's sort of like did the people did their presence um did it help establish a new king or queen like what did their child become the new king or queen like what was their importance to world history and the thing with Anne Stanley is that she because of her like she set this legal precedent that wives could testify against husbands that women could testify in court that's huge and that's major and that's I think really significant and I want to recognize that so I'm going to give her an eight for significance I think because it's not like there's a bunch of significant things but there's one and that is real massive and the final category is the sexism bonus so how much was she a victim of the bullshit patriarchy and I feel like everybody was in all of these stories right because that's the world they lived in like she was married at a young age she was a victim of her awful husband but then the legal system actually ended up like for her for her like we're looking just at her like the two men servants who were maybe assholes but also victims the class of it all like got in their way like they didn't get a fair trial at all and they were put in terrible situations and all that sort of stuff but for lady anne herself the patriarchal structures of like the all-male jury and everything actually came to bat for her like the judges were like guess what even if she is a whore she can still be raped like it's odd to me how much the patriarchy was not the main villain in this story so i'm gonna give her just a basic five bonus for sexism so let's just add this up so this is 26 which is the same score as anne askew one more above Catherine willoughby so just to recap for this season how everybody felt on the scandalous scale. Catherine Willoughby had a 25. Lady Anne Stanley and Anne Askew both with a 26. Lady Mary Gray, 26.5. Catherine Parr and Frances Gray, both 27. Mary Tudor, 27.5. Lady Catherine Gray, 29. And Lady Jane Gray, 29.5. So where that lists them within the whole pantheon of everyone we've ever done, like the highest score anyone's ever had, was from season two, Joanna of Naples got a 33 but still i like i appreciate how kind of close the different scores were it really shows that all of them were equally impressive and important in their own different ways so this whole season how to lose a queen in nine days it's been really interesting to get together and it's sort of choosing which nine stories i would do it was hard to choose what the stopping point is because everybody kept having children and we're always talking about women so I'm just always looking to see when people have daughters so you know the descendants of Catherine Gray what did they get up to the descendants of Anne Stanley what did they get up to there's a lot to dive into but I think nine episodes is perfect for this situation and I've had a really good time putting together this season so just the regular reminders I have for you all I have a patreon if you're like oh my god what the season's over but I need more Anne talking casually in a comedic way about Tudor history while swearing occasionally. I do have mini episodes available on my Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Writer. So from this season, I added two new mini episodes. So the mini episodes there are all 
about assholes from history. It's where I can really dive into just like these dirtbags who fucked up women's lives. The two that I've just edited this season, there's one for Thomas Seymour and there's one for Robert Dudley. And there's also some older ones from previous seasons as well, like Emperor Nero, for instance. So if you go to patreon.com slash Writer, that's where those live. And I have my history writing is at annefosterwriter.com. This podcast is on Vulgar History on Twitter and Vulgar History Pod on Instagram. Between seasons, I still post stuff, so you can follow me there too. And then as always, I have a little shop on Teespring where I have items pertaining to the women we talked about this season. Like we have items for the Renaissance, Reformation, Girl Squad. We have stuff for Lady Jane Grey. We have stuff for Mary Tudor. Just so check it out there. It's at teespring.com slash stores slash vulgar history. And then also the a full list of all the books that I've read and researched for this season are on the featured page in bookshop.org. The, list, the link to that is in the show notes. So I hope, I hope this podcast finds you well. Everybody take care out there. Uh, stay tuned for news like there's going to be another season. Don't worry about that. Keep your masks on, keep your tits out, and I'll talk to you all next time. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.